teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. Today's podcast message features Dr. Kurt Mackey, our guest speaker from Sky Valley Ministries 2022 Refresh Bible Conference. To learn more about Kurt and his ministries, please visit our website at svmin.com slash refresh2022. You refreshed? I have been. Now, it's also because you're delightful people, but let's be honest, this is kind of like paradise out here. And, you know, I lived in Fullerton, but I don't know that I fully appreciated how awesome it is just another 100 miles or so out here, right? And I know you folks are like, yeah, we just call this Wednesday, but I think this is really impressive. And so I am just been, it's a, been a delight to be with you. I have enjoyed the conversations after our sessions, the questions you're asking, the, the, the thinking that's beginning to take place. I, want, I know that I have dropped a lot of material on you. And that was my intent. Because I know with a group like this, where we've got folks from different uh, tribes of churches, in, you know, from different parts of our country, from different parts of the world, that that there's a whole lot of different needs, if you will, where people are on different places in their journey, and some churches are getting really ready to try some of this, and some pastors that you're going to go back and talk with are like, what are you talking about, right? And so I get that. So I'm trying to drop a whole lot of high-level information that'll hopefully encourage you to seek further, to do some more research, to think deeply. And I'm also hoping to drop some practical tools as well. So this morning... I'm actually going to do both. We're going to have two, um, two different presentations, a little bit, both a little shorter. One of them is a very, it's a 30,000, maybe a 60,000 foot, maybe it's the SR-71, 75,000 foot level, right? And then we're going to give you some real practical tools that you can lean into in our second presentation this morning to literally start living like some of this tomorrow, if you will. And then we're finally going to end up, and I'm telling my sound man to remind me, because I've got a website that I want to show you before we break this morning, because it'll also give you some resources and places you can go to lean into this further. It's actually my team, and we're, we're, we've been the refocusing team at Novo, but now we're changing to the activated team, and the website is the latest, latest and greatest incarnation of our material, and there are some places you can land to begin to get resources. You can join up and join some of our groups. Literally, we'll do them online with you, and then you can take that material into your churches wherever you are, and it's all there for you. So I'm excited to share that as we break this morning. So it has been a great time. One of you gave me a great um, observation, so I want to share that before I begin. As we were talking last night about, about intercultural evangelism, we were talking about different worldviews. You recall that chart where you've got the four different worldviews at the top and then the implications therein. And one said to me, okay, so again, how would, I, how would I identify a person? I said, here's an easy way to do this. If you literally think, if a neighbor moves in across the street and they come from mainland China, you can immediately think, okay, they're probably in this column just literally based on where they're coming from, and that will orient you very quickly. 
If somebody moves in from somewhere in the Caribbean across the street from you, you can begin to think, I wonder if they're in the power and fear worldview because that are worldviews that dominate that part of the world. So I know that's a lot of information I gave you last night, but that'll orient you to, okay, if somebody is born and coming from this place, this might be a way that I'm going to share Jesus is through these particular avenues. Does that make sense? So enjoy those charts, meditate on that, think about that. Again, I've given you so much to wrestle with. And my hope is that you'll, that some of these ideas down the road will really click. You're like, oh, yeah, that funny guy from Texas was talking about that. And it'll all of a sudden make sense. Something your pastor might say or something you'll read somewhere and it'll set off another thought like, oh, I was exposed to that. Okay, let's, we need to go there further. So that's my hope and intention. You've been delightful to be with and I hope to come visit you again sometime soon. That would be great. And again, I love where you live, so pretty cool. We're going to talk about missional DNA this morning. This is based on the work of Dr. Alan Hirsch. He is actually a colleague in the Novo sphere of influence. He's a great thought leader in the area of the, of the church on mission, of the missional church. And his research has done a lot of depth. And again, what was happening in those first 300 years of the church that give us the cues and the clues to where we should go because the Christendom world that we have been used to for the last 15 to 1700 years is, is crumbling quickly. So this is some great top level um, thought leader kind of stuff. But his question he raised was this. In the year 100 AD, in the Roman Empire, there were about 25,000 Christians total in that part of the world. I literally don't know how historians document that, but I'm going to go with it because the research has been worked out and that's beyond my pay grade. But, but the estimation is about 25,000 were followers of Jesus in the year 100. In the year 310, it had multiplied to 20 million. How is that possible? How did that happen? And that's an interesting question because it, they didn't have hardly anything that we would think of as church today. And yet these followers were replicating. As we study, as missiologists study what's happening in China today, and again, you won't see this on the news. They won't advertise this at the Olympics. This is not going to be something you're going to get from any of the normal media. But, but the underground church in China is actually really exploding. And there are sociologists who aren't even church folk who actually estimate there will be more Christians in China than in any, any other country in the world. It will not surprise me if in the coming years that we will have um, books written by theologians and pastors in underground church China helping us understand how to do church now in the West. I think that's coming. I'm so used to all of my teachers being from North America or from Europe, and yet we're realizing that there are theologians and pastors and church leaders now in other parts of the world that are they're speaking, and, and because well, where our culture's going, they've already been there, and they can inform us. So we're gonna have to learn from a broader stripe of thinkers and practitioners as we move into this new world. So we've talked about this a little bit, but I wanna review for you quickly what the early church context was like 
So remember, the religion at the time, the way, the way of Jesus, this Jesus group thing, was literally illegal. It was not submitting to the Roman emperor and all the pantheon of gods and all of that. And so it, they tried to keep stamping out this, this sect of these Jesus people. So they were not in a favored tax-exempt status, if you will. They didn't have any of those blessings that we so just think of as normal today. They had nothing like that. They did, we talked yesterday a little bit about buildings, you know, and where does this all go in with buildings? I have no idea, but I do know that back then they literally did not have any church gathering buildings like that we think of today. There was no central place for church folks to gather. They were meeting in small groups. They were then literally training and discipling in small context and then replicating and you could have networks of thousands of these little micro-churches, if you will, under pastoral leadership that are caring for the leaders of all of these little cells, if you will, and they just kept multiplying as they went. So no church buildings. What's interesting to me to think about is that they didn't really have any of the scriptures yet either because the scriptures took a while to be put together and canonized. So they were running with basically the teachings of Jesus in a, in a loose form, word of mouth, some early writings, and that's what they were working from. And it's amazing they went from thousands to millions. There were no formal institutions. There were no seminaries. There, there, was, there was nothing, no, no official training centers. There were no professional leaders. If you were a church leader in that context, you know, you had your normal day job and you were shepherding people around that experience as well. It was very humble. It's been said there were no secret sensitive services, there were no youth groups, there were no worship bands. That's very sad for me since I love music, but there were no cemeteries, there were no commentaries. They didn't have any of the stuff that we think of as got to have to do church. And they went from thousands to millions. And what's interesting, too, is in that context, they had a very high bar for, for membership in the church. It's been said that they actually made it difficult to join. They wanted to know if you were really serious they tested you. They prayed over They cleaned you up spiritually and emotionally. They, they went through a long catechism, if you will, a catechesis, a, a formal training program of, of doctrines and teachings of Jesus, and they, they really worked that into you before you could officially be part of the church. Today, we're sort of like, hey, come to the welcome class for two hours, we'll have a potluck, and then you can sign the dot online. Boom, you're in, Right? And I've been part of that. I'm just like, we'll grab anybody. Oh, if you, if you believe in Jesus, just say yes, and boom, you're in, right? They made it very difficult to join. And still it propagated into the millions. So, their world is actually quite similar now to where we are today. And I think it's going to be increasingly so. I do realize that some of you come from places in your communities where what I'm saying kind of makes sense, but your, your community still feels relatively Christian 
you don't feel the hostility yet, but I can just tell you that if, if, we're, if Europe is where I think it's going, it's coming to a theater near you. It, it may not be immediately this year or next, but it, but it is coming. Postmodern philosophy, the acid of uh, scientism, and all this philosophy that's very rapidly expanding is shaping our culture, and it's, it's turning it on its head very quickly. As I argued the other night, it's been argued in, in a number of scholarly writings that literally since about 2010, our culture has been almost like in a whiplash because of a whole new philosophical system went from the academy into the mainstream very quickly. And with the tools of media and with the internet and with literally smartphones that can download anything from anywhere, those ideas have taken root in our culture very quickly. And that's why many of us feel seasick because the ship flipped really quick. And we're all reeling from what's happening. But I would say this, that that's probably going to continue. There may be some pushback philosophically back and forth, but our world, the Western world, is becoming increasingly pagan. In a passive sense, people are just kind of, I don't believe anything or I believe anything and everything. And then others are literally pursuing Wicca and all kinds of occult things. That, that stuff is becoming normalized in our world today. Our culture today is becoming tough and resistant to the gospel. People actually think they know what the church represents. They think they know what Jesus said. They have little tidbits and ideas. And so they're really not interested until they see a radical different expression of the life of Jesus through us. Churches that are growing, sadly, are pulling for often from other churches and it has a kind of a consumeristic kind of vibe to it. There are still churches that really are, you know, are booming in various places. Sometimes there's actual conversion growth. Oftentimes, though, it's people realize that church has a better show than the church I'm in, and so I'll just go there. And when you look at it at a net, you know, one church loses, another church wins, but that's not a kingdom win. That's just moving people around. I think I told you the night that, um, did I mention how the folks at EV Free um, actually apologized to us? Did I tell you about that? It's very powerful. When, um, when we as young, I was a young pastor, I was in Fullerton, California, and when we got together with a bunch of other pastors at the EV Free Fullerton Church, one of their, and the new pastor, Dale Burke, had just come, and, and he was doing a good job, and he was in the middle of all the change, and, and one of his associate pastors came and said, gentlemen, we're... We apologize for being arrogant because we took a lot of your people back in the 80s. Wow. And my people at, at my church in Fullerton were actually kind of a little bitter. You know, it's like, yeah, they exploded, but we lost. And, and that's hard. And they said, we're sorry. We just got kind of caught up in, in big and better, and we didn't really think about where people are coming from. And so... I was just really blessed by them saying that. When I told my people from the pulpit one Sunday morning, it was a healing moment for our people. I say, okay, we're all on the same team. And whether your church is big or is small, realize this, we're, we're all trying to lift up Jesus. And if it's a Bible-believing church that believes that Jesus is God, if we start there, then we can play together. We may have nuances and differences of theology and little practices, but if, if the word is lifted up and Jesus is Lord and he is God and he's God in the flesh, 
then we're on the same team. And I want to be partnering with churches of different types and stripes so we can be creatively reaching our cities for God because we're all on the same team and I want to see this thing take off and it's going to be interesting rowing ahead. I think it's time that we move from just adding disciples to literally multiplication. And to multiply means we're going to have to decentralize some of this and empower people to move and replicate and expand quickly. That's what they did in the early church. It wasn't about making sure everybody comes to hear a professional speaker. It was about empowering people to live like Jesus and lead others to Jesus and start little groups and cells that then replicate again and off it goes. That's multiplication. That's what I would love to see here in North America. I think it's time that the Christendom model I mean, it's already coming to an end. It, it's just going to have to be time to say that was, Lord bless it, but it's, it's a new day. And the sooner we can make that pivot in our heads, the better. I do know as I coach pastors all over the country, as I work with leaders around the world, I know that this, after this COVID experience, there's a lot of leaders, again, that just, we just want to get back to the way it was, that, that the high water mark is whatever attendance we had before the pandemic, that's what I'm aiming for. And I am suggesting, don't rebuild, try to get back to where you are. Now that things have been leveled out, essentially all of your programs have been wiped off the map. You've been reduced down to a church plant all over again. <laughs> Be strategic for the future not trying to recreate the past. And there are leaders that start to get that, and there are pastors and leaders that still struggle with that, and I get that that's a hard pivot. I get that I've been studying this kind of material, I've been immersed in this for years, my doctoral work in, involved diving deep into some of this, so I get that I have already made the mental shift. I guess I would say to you, be patient with your pastors, <laughs> If they're not ready to make the shift, pray for them, love them. I can tell you this, in the middle of the COVID experience, about 38 to 40% of pastors were really contemplating leaving, quitting the whole thing, just out, done. Pastors were really beat up in their churches even with literally the mask wars. Every phone call, every week I had was this was the dynamic. Some say, how dare I want to kill grandma the other side says, how dare you bow to Caesar? And they got hit every week by this division. And it sounds actually demonic to me that the enemy would take something like that and make it divide a church. The enemy loves that. And we've got to begin to get, we've got to move beyond this stuff. And I realize a lot of leaders just want to get back to the way it was. I'm just hoping they can begin to do some research, think about these things you might slip them a book or take them to a website and say, have you thought about this? Because I think the Christendom model needs to be done. We need to move into some new ways of thinking. See, mission has become a program in the church, and it needs to move back to what the church literally is all about. One is an identity, and it's a being, as opposed to a program and a line item. It's time to shift as church as mission, that we are people on a mission. And by the way, living on mission is, is stimulating and exciting and, and faith-stretching, and it's growing to our souls because we all get to play. 
And we get to learn and grow along the way. That, I think, is exciting. So, Alan Hirsch and his colleagues have come up with what he calls mDNA, missional DNA. These, this is the, the very basic roots of what it means to be missional in this coming world. And there are um, a, couple, a few of these items. The first, and we're going to unpack them more carefully, that Jesus is Lord is number one. And we'll unpack the implication of that. That we're all about disciple-making. We take very seriously Matthew 28, the last words of Jesus after he taught them for three years, that okay, now go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them and obeying, to obey everything I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and I'm with you always to the end of the age. My paraphrase. That was the last words. Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, and boom, off it goes. Disciple making is a core value. This missional, incarnational impulse. Big word, we'll unpack it in a few moments. Another big set of words, liminality. Wow, what is that? We're going to look at that in a minute. And communitas, crazy academic words, but I think you'll understand them in a few moments because I think this is part of the DNA of what it means to be missional. We'll look at that. Apest, there's a funny word. Apest, which I'll explain here in a moment, has actually become a revolutionary idea in my own thinking about with leadership and pastors and, and, and who's in the congregation. It refers to the apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher out of the book of Ephesians. And, I, and the argument, well, I'll get to the argument. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm so excited about that one. We'll get to that in a moment. Last one is we have to have organic systems instead of hierarchical top-down systems. Again, we're trying to, to train people to give the faith away. It's an empowering model instead of a control model. Instead of an institutional model, it's a replicating model. And it's a shift in how we think about the church and how we think about discipleship and how we think about even our role as pastors. Again, I'm moving away from the idea that a pastor is to gather a crowd, that the point is to, is to have a big service every time and try to get more people. Instead, I'm interested in helping pastors think about themselves as trainers, disciple makers, people developers, because we're in the people development business. We're in the disciple making business, not the gathering for a gathering's sake business. And that's a huge shift in our souls. So let's look for a moment here at what Jesus is Lord is all about. Roland Allen, who's a missiologist, said what is needed is the kind of faith which uniting a man and a woman to Christ sets him or her on fire. Love that imagery. Like, boom, I've been forgiven, I have the Holy Spirit, I am now in the Lord's, on the Lord's team. Boom, how do I ignite a fire? The second idea is this, that God is one. The idea that God is over everything. God is the highest everything. And we have to bring everything in our lives under his lordship, under the lordship of Jesus, under his kingdom rule. So, the individual, the, indi the communal, all of this under this one God, Yahweh, right? Really makes discipleship really important because we're really pushing the issue that Jesus is Lord over it all. 
Second core value, disciple making. Remember, Jesus called out to them, come follow me. To the earliest call of the disciples, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. Well, that was a big occupational shift for these folks. They were literally fishermen. And if you've seen the show, The Chosen, I just love how they capture some of that. If you haven't downloaded that and watched it, it's a beautiful rendition of what I think the disciples were really like, squabbly guys with all their issues and stuff, and Jesus trying to corral these guys and take these ornery fishermen, salty dogs, if you will, and make them kingdom people who are going to be spiritual leaders that replicate the church. That's quite a task. And he calls them, I'm going I'm to take you to a whole new way of thinking and living and being where you're going to learn to fish for people. And so I've said this in different ways throughout this conference, but the church is not a purveyor of religious goods and services, but rather a strategic releaser of little Christs who embody the kingdom values in their bodies and souls, in their behaviors, in how they engage the world, how they love their friends, how they love the least and the lost, how they literally pray for people and actually want God's kingdom power to come. They live as expressions of the kingdom wherever they go. And they take that seriously. And God meets them there in profound, challenging ways. I just love to say, just get ready to, to get up every morning and say, Lord, how do you want to use me on mission today? And watch what he will do. Watch what happens. Watch how God, who God brings into your sphere of influence. It's fascinating. But we have to be open as our feet hit the mat in the morning. We roll out of bed like, Lord, today is, the lay, today is the day that you have made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And now I'm your servant. Who do you want me to love and bless today? And watch what happens. Super fun. See, Jesus called these disciples, and he took them on these adventurous journeys of mission and ministry and learning. We've talked about, again, how he would literally teach them, and then he would say, okay, go try that. And he'd send them on little short-term missions. And, he would, and they'd go out and they'd fumble around and they'd get some of it right and they'd misfire a little bit and they'd come back and they'd debrief. There was all this on-the-job training. It wasn't just educating ideas. It was ideas that are supposed to show up in ways of fishing for people. And we can learn those rhythms. We can be those kind of people. We can be involved in proclaiming the kingdom of God serving the poor, healing people, casting out demons. We can learn this stuff as kingdom agents in the world. Third element of missional DNA is this idea of what's called the missional incarnational impulse. It's the idea that we're going to be people that literally live John 20, verse 21. Remember when, the, when Jesus said, just as the Father sends me, I am sending you. And missional churches take this sending very seriously. I've always been trained, Walt and I have been trained, about we're about gathering and getting people into a room, and Jesus seems to be interested in, in sending people on mission. Now, I'm not saying those are not, those, those can't be connected together, but if we're still always thinking about gathering, Jesus clearly was talking about a sending experience. A very serious commitment to the idea of the sentness of we as followers of Jesus. And we want to be winsome people. 
We want to be people that, that are sent with a, with a sensitive eye to where people are really at. We talked about how I've run across people who talk at me instead of dialogue with me. And one feels dehumanizing. One feels like you, they don't even notice that I'm actually here. They don't even notice that I'm a person because they're just talking at and over me. And sometimes we followers of Jesus, we want to tell the truth and we want to just sort of say it, but we're not actually saying it in a way that's helpful for them to hear. We just want to sort of get it out. And this, this world says we want to finesse that. We want to be winsome. We want to be creative. We want to be listening well to the hurts and the needs of the other. And as we talked about last night, tailoring the gospel in such a way that it, it meets them where they are instead of just making me comfortable if I saying it in the way that I'm comfortable with. And each generation has its own needs, its own hurts, its own perspectives. Remember, Jesus is Lord, he is the truth, and his truth meets and touches all these different kind of folk in all of their different places. We just wanna be winsome people that learn how to, to navigate that. Helmut Tielicke, the theologian, said the gospel must be proclaimed afresh in new ways to each generation since every generation has its own unique questions. What does it mean to be human? What is a good person? What's a good life? Every generation is wrestling in its own ways with those kinds of questions. And Jesus, Lord of all, has answers for all of that to every generation. So we're gonna learn how to send and presence the gospel. I love that imagery. My team talks about it all the time, that we are, we are kingdom agents, that we presence the gospel wherever we go. It's a beautiful imagery. And we're always with our radar on every day. Lord, who, who do you want me to bless for the sake of your kingdom? It's interesting in Jeremiah 29, many of us know that great text about, you know, the Lord says, I've got a hope and a plan for you. I know your future to build you up, and that's kind of a quick paraphrase, right? But the idea, we love that text about God's got a, a good plan and a good future for us. What's interesting about that, though, is the context of where they were, right? Where were the folks when Jeremiah was writing? Do you remember where Israel was at that time? Babylon, right? Good Christian city, right? Good God-fearing folks, not a chance, right? Pagan to the core, Babylon has always been this type of like everything antithetical to the gospel, right? And God has them there for 70 years in what I call the great timeout. Israel, you've, this is just simple Charlie Brown theology, right? Like Israel, you've been naughty, time out. But I've got a hope and a future, the father says through the prophet. But in that same chapter is also some really interesting verbiage about seeking the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've called you. My team has taken that very seriously. Like, wow, God wanted those Israelites in Babylon, even though they were out of their comfort zone, they're in a pagan city, he wants them to be agents of love and blessing amongst those pagan people. And I keep asking the question, do you mean, when you say seek the peace and prosperity, does that mean just sort of look out the window and go, I hope it's out there? No, it means go out there 
and bless and actually bring peace and good news to people who are far from God. And you know, church traditions I've been around, the whole idea was we want to get away from those people because we don't want to get contaminated. But I see the mission of Jesus. He's always with the wrong people. And it's the overchurched that get all upset about it. When you live on mission, there will be people that will say, now nah, you're, you're getting too far, you're getting too crazy, we gotta, we gotta hunker down and wait for the end. I don't know that's how Jesus did ministry. He was always just loving and blessing, and he wasn't judgy. He was judgy, if you will. Young people love that word. Don't be judgy. He was judgmental about the Pharisees who should have known better. He was gracious to the pagans who were all messed up, and he called them to come home. I'd love it for us to be a sent people that we reflect that idea, that we would literally take seriously seeking the peace and the prosperity of all the cities which you represent as you, at, at different times of the year, come and go from different places. If you would say, Lord, I want to love and be a blessing to the community that I've been called to, what would you like me to do? And literally, that's a setup because that website that I'm going to show you before we break today gives you some tools to discern what that would look like for each of you based on your own life story. Who does God want you to serve and bless in your city that doesn't know Jesus? We can help you figure that out. And when you see it, it's quite a neat revelation. This impulse, this idea of, of literally living on mission. I love that. Another one is this fancy terminology called liminality and communitas. Only scholars can come up with terms like that, right? Let me break that down for you. So when you serve on mission, and you've experienced this when, you, when you've done a work project perhaps. Maybe you've gone to a southern country or done something in your own city where you get a band of folks from your church together and you may not know each other very well, but you do a project together, something about, you know, shoulder to shoulder, working on something together that bonds you together, right? And, we, and you come back from a trip like that, from an experience like that, and there's a new camaraderie, there's a, there's a sense of oneness that you don't get from just perhaps being in a Bible study, wonderful as those are, but there's something about serving together. It's the band of brothers idea, Right? Walt, I mean, you know this from people who are put on a ship together and are up against adversity and they're, whether they're in a battle stations or wherever they're in a foxhole, wherever you are, boy, when, you, when you serve in tough circumstances, you are forever connected. And the idea is that as we serve in the world, it's not going to be easy, but as we literally do it together in small teams, it will bond us in beautiful, profound ways. And we can learn to love and appreciate that. We want to be the kind of people that just have a wild abandon and a high commitment to see the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And the idea is we're just willing to work hard and, and, and be together in the midst of even the challenge and the opposition. It's a wonderful experience. Liminality is a term that comes actually from, from the African rites of passage where people would find themselves in the in-between, this marginal state in relating to the surrounding society. They would, they would literally, when it was time for a young man or woman to, to sort of enter the next phase, to become adults, they would put them in these situations, kind of semi-in-danger, semi-in-the-comfortable place, and in that in-between, it, it feels really awkward because you're in neither place. Because like, 
This world isn't our home, but we are here, right? We're to be in the world, but not of it. That, that's that place of in-between. It's a little bit awkward. But when we live together in community in the awkward, it bonds us together. And that's actually a real blessing. and allows us to be strategic together to love and bless others. So I like to say this. It's time for no more huddling and cuddling. It's time to live boldly as, as agents of the kingdom in the cities to which God has called you. Next point, apest culture. I love this. This was a real watershed idea for me. Alan Hirsch and Tim Ketchum have written an amazing book called The Permanent Revolution. It's about 300 pages of deep dive into the history of, of what's called apest, the ap apostolic, prophetic, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, and how scholars and Bible teachers and thinkers throughout the centuries have, have landed on that. And, and what's, the reality is this. The scriptures talk about in Ephesians, I think it's chapter 4, is that right? Yeah. Ephesians 4, five types of leadership that's needed for a movement to unfold. Remember, the church in its early days was not an institution. It was a movement. It moved. It expanded. It was dynamic in how it rolled through a community. So you have these five positions, if you will, these five, five types of leaders, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. What has happened in Christendom, the argument goes, is that we've sidelined the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists. Now let me just right away say, I know some of you are thinking, wait, apostles, they were gone in the first century. I get. So don't think of these as offices. Think of them as functions. And if you think of them as functions, then a person with an apostolic function, if you will, gifting, kind of a makeup of the way that they live the faith, apostolic people start new things. They don't mind doing cross-cultural things. They don't mind traveling and uniting groups together. They are they're catalytic people. Prophetic people I'm not talking about the Old Testament prophets. I'm talking about prophetic people that are the people that, that call people of God to commitment again. There are prophetic people that I'm coaching that, I mean, they have an edge. Like, their preaching, their teaching is always, boom, we got to get right. We got to get back to basics. It's a prophetic thing. And people who, who do prophecy are people who encourage at the same time. So the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. Evangelists are the kind of people that just wherever they go, they scoop up people. They can't help it. It's just how they roll. Wherever they go, they're just kind of collecting people. Now, we're all called to be evangelists, but there are people that just kind of the way that they move and live and move and have their being, if you will, is they just literally draw crowds and scoop up people. So <laughs> we like to call those people the apes, the apostles, prophets, and evangelists, right? Apes make pastor, shepherds, teachers nervous <laughs> because they're activistic. They rattle the cage. When an apostolic person sits down with a pastor, they're always saying, come on, how are we going to expand this thing? How about we start this crazy thing across town? Let's go. And the shepherd teacher's like, look, i got 30 hours to put my sermon together. This is too much. Please, please go somewhere else. 
An evangelist, like we got to reach the whole city and the, the shepherd teachers, they have a different focus. The argument goes this way. Over the course of the last 1,700 years in Christendom, we've elevated the shepherd teacher as the model of leadership because it fits an institutional church well. And we've sidelined the apostles and the prophetic and the evangelistic functions. So you know where those folks tend to end up? Mission organizations. When I joined Novo, it's like all these wild cats are running around, and they are all over the place. They're wild and woolly. They're, they're like, take no prisoners. They, they go into crazy places, and they don't care about danger, and they're they scooping up people, and wow, I've never seen a whole cadre of people that roll like that. Because local churches don't know what to do with that function, those functions. The argument goes, however, what would happen if we could, as the local church, if we could pull all of those back together and live in the tension so that literally every church in its leadership had at least one apostle, one prophet, one evangelist, one shepherd, one teacher sitting around at the board meeting. Now, it's going to be a fiery conversation, right? Because the apostle's like, let's go start something. And the shepherd is like, whoa, we got some hurting people here. Both are true. Right? The teachers say, now we got to make sure we keep the doctrine straight. Absolutely true. But the evangelist is like, but we got to scoop up all these people. And the prophetic is like, but we got to call everybody back to holiness. And all are true. The argument goes that Jesus actually represents the perfect apostle, the perfect prophet, the perfect evangelist, the perfect shepherd, and the perfect teacher. That all of those are, are dimensions of Jesus. And we need all of them in the church. But if we've been highlighting shepherd and teacher, and it's fascinating, I've done this, I've looked at some commentaries, I've looked at books on leadership, and they'll point to Ephesians 4, and they'll skip a discussion on the first three. It's like, we don't know what to do with all that, but, but there it is, pastor, the shepherd and teacher, that's the leader of the church. And I'm like, where's, wait a minute, there's three others that you dropped off. Oh, they're all running around in mission organizations because local churches can't deal with them. I'm trying to bring it all back together. I would love to honor each of those pieces. And I think the local churches would be far healthier if all of those roles were validated and encouraged and leaned into. You can literally go online to Alan Hirsch's organization. It's like apest.com or something. Walt will give you the... the, the the actual website, you can actually take a battery of, of questions that'll help you identify what's your five scale. It'll take all five of those and say, which one are you top and which one's your last? And it's really fun to think about what's your first two. Turns out, I'm actually, the highest is a teacher. Second was apostolic. And now it makes sense why I feel so at home in my next world because I get to start things and unite people and work you know, in, in a variety of larger contexts. That feels normal to me. Getting on a plane and crossing the world and meeting with leaders and pulling those guys together and so, ladies together, that's just normal. And when I was in my local church context, it, it felt in some ways constraining that I had to stay in certain boxes. Get the idea. It'd be fascinating for you to know What's your score? Where do you fit? And if some of you are some of the apes, 
where those are high scores for you, and you felt a little bit shut out or a little bit ostracized in your local church, you've not felt valued, I am sorry. <laughs> Hang in there. God made you that way. It's going to be okay. But if you can learn to harness that and figure out where you fit and why, it can be a real liberation to realize, oh, no wonder I'm always in conflict with leaders around me because I keep stirring stuff up. But this is how God made me. When I say stir it up, I don't mean you're dysfunctional and crazy-making. I'm just meaning you're, you're part of these apes that, that just can't help but, you know, want to get her going. Shepherd teachers are not quite sure what to do with all that. And I get it. Their gifting is different. My beef is shepherd teacher is not what's only needed to run churches. The argument actually goes when you have shepherd teachers only running the churches, they don't multiply very quickly. They don't start new stuff. They tend to be pretty risk-averse because shepherd teachers are pretty risk-averse <laughs> just by their souls. So, again, love on your pastors. Don't beat them up. But I hope this is an awakening of, oh, there's other ways to think about this. Walt will give you the, the access to the, to the websites for that. But what would churches and boards look like? What would the staff of your church look like if you had one of each of those clearly on the team? That'd be an interesting place. And one of my missions is just I'd love to see more churches take this model seriously and try to implement that. I do know some mission organizations, some larger church denominational networks are literally trying to lean into this and say, okay, on our board, there better be at least two apostles, two prophets, two evangelists, two shepherds, two teachers, so that that robust conversation will guide us in the direction Jesus wants us to go. And I love that. Super fun. Last, organic systems. We need organic, if you could notice, in Scripture, we talk about, Scripture talks about plants and bodies and yeast, and there's all these organic models about the kingdom of God, right? About what God's people are to be like. They're, they're these, they're these growth-oriented metaphors. They're not institutional metaphors. They're life metaphors. They're organic metaphors. And Jesus has designed his living body to grow movementally. And so what's fascinating to think about this is every disciple and every group of disciples has the full potential for it to move in the kingdom of God. We still tend to think we've got to have a professional pastor, and we've got to have a worship team, we've got to have a building. When I do some work in certain parts of the world, the first thought is we have to build the building, then we have to hire the pastor. Like this is, again, a very institutional approach. But if you think about it, if you get a bunch, Jesus said, if you get two or three followers of Jesus, I'm in the middle of it. You all actually have access to the Holy Spirit. He's taken up residence in you. You all have what's necessary to have a little movement take place, a gospel movement, down to the very small micro level. And that's what happens in underground churches. They don't go after the big stuff. They just know. We get a few people together, we disciple each other, we train them to go love on some other people, and we do it again. And it moves. We can do that. Each church has Jesus. Each church has the Holy Spirit. Each church has these missional DNA in, embedded in it. We have human choice to follow it. And so here's a challenge. If your church isn't growing, you've got to remove some of the impediments. I think COVID 
That's going to sound crazy. COVID was really hard on the church. It was also a gift because it took out a lot of stuff that was in our way. We were so busy with programs and with activities that are actually, they're good, but they're not great. They were not preparing us to live on mission like this. They were, they're just kind of, if I'm, I forgive me, but they were kind of filler. Like they're, it's a way to stay with our friends and to be together, and I get all that, but it's a new day. And now that those have been all taken off the board, we have an opportunity to, to retool for a new day. For those that are ready, for, <laughs> as Jesus said, for those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Okay, right? Christendom was about a monument. Jesus is about movement. I'd love for us to recapture movement. I'd love for Christian leaders to grab the idea again that we're supposed to live missionally in our own personal lives and then flatten some of our structures, release authority, let people live on mission, empower them to do so. I love for pastors to think of themselves as the lead coach in your congregation. They're coaching people to live their individual missional calling. How fun is that? And to have all these people coming and going who are living and experiencing the kingdom out in the city to where you live, work, and play, and their job is to develop and coach and resource. And with that, as a missional DNA, I think the church still has great hope. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, right? And the gates of hell will not prevail. So the good news is he wins. We just may have to shift the, the automobile a little bit, the vehicle. It's okay. He's still on the throne. He's still in charge. He's still doing stuff. I want to get on and play in this new world. How are we doing? We good? Let me give you one more presentation before we break. And here comes, I'm going to, in fact, tell you what, take one minute, talk to your neighbor, tell them what you learned out of that last presentation while I switch, switch presentations. Be right back. All righty, so some pastors and scholars came up with a tool, a tool for how to live like this. So it's going to be, a, I'm going to leave you with some disciplines, some ways of leaning into some of this stuff, which you can actually practice. And so this, we're going to call it living a questionable life. So the idea is this. In communication theory, when predictability is high, impact is low. <laughs> If you already know where this is going, if you know what's going to be said, it's really easy to check out. It's real, the impact loses its emphasis. It doesn't have the power any longer. And the same for Christian outreach. If we just keep doing the same old things that the world has already seen and already, by the way, rejecting, we don't have much impact. But what if we as followers of Jesus were to become, as we've written here, a godly, intriguing socially adventurous, joyous presence in the lives of people. And I'm just going to go off here for a second, that joyous. I, I'm doing a lot of reading with the books of Jim Wilder. Highly recommend his work. He's really thinking about the neuroscience and brains and how spirituality works in the kingdom of God. And he makes the argument that even the secular researchers have discovered that our brains were designed for joy. Now that to me is huge was actually a doctor at UCLA that really leaned into that and did all this brain research and said, you know, seems like our brains were designed for joy. That's the normal state of joy. And if it's not in joy, it's because of trauma. And we've got to heal the trauma to get back to joy. 
And it's like the theologians are like, yes, of course, because why? Because we're made in God's image. A trinity that lives in joy. This all makes sense. So the neuroscience is not scary. The neuroscience validates the kingdom of God. Super fun. And so we as followers of Jesus ought to be joyful people in our gatherings together, but in our presencing the kingdom out there. I think we should be the people that are totally different because we're the joyful people. Even when things are rough, there's joy, right? When even things are going you know, upside down and sideways, we still have a joy that, and a peace that the world doesn't understand. Well, Jesus says, I'm going to give you that peace that the world doesn't understand. I think that's, so people, as we're spiritually forming our lives, be like, geez, I hope joy is emerging really high. Because we need to be a joyful presence to the lives of other people. So the question was raised by these leaders, if you reflect on the rhythms of your life, which of them are motivated by your faith? Rhythms, that, the ways that you live in your jobs, in your communities, in your churches, in your families, which of those are really driven by the fact that I am a follower of Jesus? And then they, they ask the question, of those rhythms, which ones do you think would qualify as questionable? <laughs> Practices that the non-Christians in your life would find surprising or intriguing. So we're going to challenge you to live questionable lives, not because you're unethical or doing something horrendous and sinful, but your life is so different in a good way that people are like, wow, what is, what is that that you have? Why are you so joyful? Why are you such a servant? Why are you so selfless? Why are you able to roll with the punches and still keep your balance? How can that be? Because our culture has really bad coping mechanisms for life, right? Addictions of all sorts, all kinds of nonsense. And, and yet we as followers of Jesus, we ought to be the people that can navigate life even in tough times. And there's, there's a buoyancy. There's something very different about how we engage the world and how we engage our Father and one another. So questionable people. So we want to develop some habits of the faith where we find regular rhythms and habits that literally transform our lifestyles so that the book of James 2.18 is true, so that someone is going to say, you've got faith, I have deeds, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You see, my faith is so real, it expresses itself in all kinds of ways to love and bless others. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We talked about this the other day. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, Greek word poema. You're God's masterpiece. You're God's poem created in Christ Jesus to do these good works, to be a blessing in the world around you. And notice which God prepared in advance for us to do. I think a haunting question is, wow, Father, what, what good works do you want me to do? Because I want to be obedient to you, and if you've prepared something for me, so and again, my commercial to this website I'm going to take you to before we leave today, we have some tools that really help us live into Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We have some ways of really discerning that in a powerful way. 
can be wonderful for you. So habits, I love how Aristotle said this, we are what we repeatedly do. And excellence is then not an act, but it's a habit. We want to get into rhythms, practices, habits of the kingdom and of blessing other people that we take on literally every day. It's not just a belief system, it's a way of being to those we love and those we don't yet know. So, we want to be fostering habits among Christians that will turn and shape their values and their beliefs. Habits that unite us together as believers while propelling us into the life of others. So, there's this acronym that was developed called BELLS. And so, I've just called this slide, Ring the Bells. We're going to ring the bells. It's more fun to teach this at Christmas, but it works in February, too. And here's the quick chart. I'm going to go through it quickly here, and then we're going to unpack each one more deeply. So bells. First is bless. If I'm going to live on a habit of mission, then I'm going to commit to bless three people this week, at least one of whom is not a member of our church, as a weekly habit. I'm going to eat with three people this week, at least one of whom is not a member of my church. We're going to look at that. What's, why is that important? Third one, listen. I will spend at least one period of the week listening for the Spirit's voice. I'm going to begin practicing learning to listen to the Spirit's voice so that when I'm in the moment of need, I can hear what the Father says to me through the Spirit. Fourth one, I will learn. I will spend at least one period of the week learning Christ. And last, of being sent. I will journal throughout the week about all the ways I alerted others to the universal reign of God through Jesus Christ. Now, those are simple, yet they're profound, but if you actually committed yourself for a year to experiment, and it'd be fun for you to get a few friends and say, we're going we're to try this lifestyle together and see what God will do. And you kept each other accountable. What if when you met in your group every week, if you have a small group, you actually report in, how's your Bell's experience going? What are you learning? What are you experiencing? What, what bumps are you hitting? What's been exciting? Let's, go and, let's unpack those carefully. When you, by the way, when you learn to bless, you actually become generous. Hmm. When you eat regularly with people, you become hospitable. When you learn to listen, you become spirit-led. When you learn about Jesus intentionally, you be actually become more Christ-like. And when you really practice and journal and think about and are intentional about being sent, you actually become missional. So each of those habits is leaning into character of the kingdom. Generous, hospitable, spirit-led, Christ-like, missional. I wish more pagans would think that Christians are those things than angry and judgmental and sour. As I joked, we don't want to be baptized in lemon juice. We are the joyful people. We have a king who loves us, who's forgiven us and given us his spirit, and is rearranging our brains to be joyful people who are generous, hospitable, spirit-led, Christ-like, and missional. That's how the early church grew. By being like this. And the world took notice. 
John Cotter, who teaches at um, Harvard, said the central issue is never strategy, structure, culture, or systems. The core of the matter is always about changing the behavior of the people. It all shows up at the end of the day in behavior. We can have all the strategy on the wall, and I know this. I do church strategy. I come in and I help churches work through strategy, but at the end of the day, if they don't actually put any of this into practice, if they don't actually change their behaviors, that was an interesting weekend. Those were some fancy charts in the corner rolled up, and that was the end of that. We want to change behavior, behaviors where it makes a difference in lives. So let's unpack bless. I will bless three people this week, at least one of whom is not a member of our church. Okay? So to bless, what do we mean by that? To bless somebody is to build somebody up, to fill them with encouragement, and to increase in strength and prosperity. We want the best for somebody. So that could be words of affirmation. It could be notes. It could be texts. It could be emails. It could be, hey, I noticed this. I appreciate that so much. You're so special to me. Way to go. What a blessing. That, what if we were the people that were always loving people like that? Every time they're with us, they just feel encouraged. And they get a note from us. And a, right, and, but we, if you're going to be blessing, we want to be, it's acts of kindness that are surprising to people. We give people gifts for no reason, no agenda, other than we love you, I want to encourage you. Now remember, if we're going to be students of blessing, and people we bless, they must feel blessed. Because <laughs> sometimes what we think might be a blessing may not actually be to them. We have to get into their head and heart and know what would actually make them feel honored, loved, and blessed. And you know, people still are going to wonder, what's the catch? Why are you doing this? Come on. What's it all about? And I think the great answer is, well, this is the stuff that Jesus does, and he loves you. And leave it there. Wow, that's a head trip. Oh, I'm just doing this because I'm a follower of Jesus, and he loves you, and so I'm loving you. Hope you feel loved. Oof. What was that about? All right, that's going to stick. Oh, there's something different about you. 1 Peter 3, 15 to 16, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this, of course, with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior may be ashamed of their slander. People will still wonder, and you may still get slandered, but you know what? God's in charge of my PR because I'm his child. It doesn't always feel good. But I'm going to be obedient to be a blessing to people around me. Okay, that's blessing. That's the first bell, part of bell. Second one is eat. I like this one. I will intentionally eat with three people this week, at least one of whom is not a member of my church. So again, that's the neighbor, that's the colleague, that's somebody who's new to church you've never met before. This is the the, 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 the first person who works in the cubicle over or whatever, or as a fellow student, whatever, you're going you're gonna to eat with some people throughout the week intentionally, at least one who's not a member of your church. Now, eating is interesting because it actually was a very central part of the movement that Jesus started. <laughs> I love this. If I give you this phrase, the Son of Man came, dot, 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 right? What comes to your mind? He came to be served, sorry, to, yeah, to be, sorry, not to be served, but to serve, 
to give his life a ransom for many. That comes from Mark 10, 45. He also, the Son of Man, came to seek and to save the lost. These are great theological, missional statements. I love this third one. The Son of Man came what? Eating and drinking. Jesus was partying, having meals, hanging out with people. Whoa. He came seeking. He came to serve. And he came to have a party and eat and drink with people. I wasn't taught that when I was growing up. I missed that. Huh. Okay. So the table, right? The table is powerful because the table, and this is fascinating, across all the cultures, the table represents hospitality. It represents inclusivity. It represents grace. It represents generosity. The table means things across cultures, and it's usually pretty similar. It's a place where you are welcomed, you are included, you are valued, and it kind of, no matter how rich or poor, we all got to eat. It levels the playing field. Everybody can, can dine together, and we can connect. In every culture, it's a meaningful experience. The table, it says here, is a great equalizer. We discover the humanity of all people. We share stories when we're at the table. We share our hopes and our fears and our disappointments. People often open up to one another at the table. And we can open up and share some things, including our faith in Jesus, when we're gathering at the table. Alan Hirsch and Lance Ford in this book right here, right now, say this, sharing meals together on a regular basis is one of the most sacred practices we can engage in as believers. Missional hospitality is a tremendous opportunity to extend the kingdom of God. We can literally, I love this line, we can literally eat our way into the kingdom of God. I love that, right? Hallelujah. If every Christian household regularly invited a stranger or a poor person into their home for a meal once a week, we would literally change the world by eating. I love that. Can you commit to eating with one person a week three people a week, but one of them who's not a member of your church as a habit of the kingdom of God to see what God will do. That's an interesting challenge, isn't it? Can you bless somebody? Can you eat with somebody? And see, as you invite people to your table, eventually they'll reciprocate the hospitality. You will get invited to their home, and now you have real missional traction around a table. Okay. Listen. I will spend at least one period of the week listening for the Spirit's voice. Now, I am a pretty high-strung guy. I'm a pretty, you know, get-a-lot-done. Personality tests, you know, I like to get a lot. I'm just moving and grooving and blowing and going all the time. And it's hard for me to just sit and let God love me. But I know I need to learn to do that. And so it's a discipline of mine to go sit on my back patio and to try to just center down and let it all go and let God's Spirit speak and listen. See, fear and laziness will kill mission. We'll always find an excuse of why we shouldn't live on mission. 
And we'll have all kinds of reasons why we shouldn't open ourselves up to other people. What if they this, and what if they that, and I don't know what to say, and da-da-da-da-da, right? We have all the reasons. You may even have a few reasons right now. Already, I can't do this, and here's why. Well, just hang on. But if we hear the voice of the Spirit, and we learn to hear that still, small voice, that still, small voice can challenge us when we're about to come up with all the excuses of why I shouldn't reach out to this person, and this pinch of the Spirit says, oh, I'm here. Go ahead and do it we can learn to hear that voice, it keeps us on track. And so the, the intentional practices, and we talked about this in, this in the disciplines the other day, of solitude and silence and prayer, those habits on a daily and weekly basis train us to be able to hear the Spirit while we're on mission. So the argument goes in this paradigm, Unless we can spend one significant period each week in the presence of the missional God, we're in danger of appearing no different to our frantic, harried, and busy neighbors. So can you try every day to sit for 20 minutes? No phone. I want to say no lights, no motor car. It sounds like Gilligan's Island. <laughs> Just came to my head. That's where my brain is so weird. But literally, you turn the phone off, you turn the internet off, you put the paper down, you, and you just go sit and, I, and I don't mean lay down and fall asleep, but I mean sit and say, Holy Spirit, come. Let me hear your voice. And you can enjoy God's presence for 20 minutes as a centering place. And if we can learn to do that and practice doing that and trying centering prayer techniques, we will begin to be sensitive to the voice of the Spirit. And when we're living on mission and the Spirit speaks, we'll hear that voice much better. And we can stay in the game. And we can learn to follow the Spirit's promptings. Because here's the challenge. And I know this question's emerging in some of your minds. How do I, again, live in the world but not of it? So I've got this little chart on this next frame here. And you've got two extremes, right? The one extreme is to be so in the world, so much like everybody else, that all of a sudden I'm in danger of drunkenness and gossip and gluttony. That's a problem. But so is the opposite problem of judgment, judgmentalism and Phariseeism and pietism. Oh, I'm too holy to sit down and, and be with you. And all. No, no, no. But I don't think that followers of Jesus are supposed to be like drunk on the wine either. So like, hmm, the Spirit's promptings will help you navigate where you've got to go with that. See what I mean? The Spirit is going to work in that. It's easy to grab one of those two extremes the challenge to live by the Spirit in the middle somewhere. Let the Spirit tell you what you're supposed to do and not do. So, number four, to learn. I will spend at least one period of the week learning Christ. Now, that was a phrase that they used in the early church all the time. We're going to learn Christ. We're going to learn about him, but we're going to learn how he lived, and we're going to emulate how he lived. People on mission must be people who represent and live, who learn Christ and live like Christ. So in the early church, when you converted, you literally denied pagan gods and you entered into this intensive period of learning Jesus. Remember, they made the bar high. If you're going to join the church, you're going to learn Jesus because we're going to send you to be Jesus in the world. And so you would commit yourself to studying the person and the work of Jesus. What would Jesus want me or us to think, to be, and to do in the here and now? So the encouragement in this paradigm, in the Bell's paradigm, 
is that you on a weekly basis are studying the Gospels. You continually are marinating your soul and mind in those four Gospels because that's the, the deepest reflection of the works and the life and the habits of Jesus. We should know the Gospels inside and out. And also, you know, read scholarly works about Jesus outside of the Scriptures, scholars who can really help you nuance some of the, the culture and the context and why Jesus would say this. Well, because in their context, this was going on, why that makes sense. So, so be deep thinkers about the works and the practices of Jesus. Watch great movies about, watch The Chosen. I think it's a fun, you, have you guys been encouraging that? Super fun. What season are they on now? Three's coming out soon. I think I'm caught up. I love how it's being like crowdsourced out there. It's just super fun to watch this thing. Watch good films and, and things. That, so again, learn Jesus from the scriptures. Learn from the good scholars. Learn from, from other films and, and movies and things that help us catch the nuances. We want to marinate ourselves so that Jesus as king is literally our hero. It's been pointed out that there was a convention of surfers and they got together, and they were having a, a gathering, and they were in this room, and, and one of their kings of surfing is, is Kelly Slater. I think Kelly Slater is getting close to 50 now, but he's still, he's still doing it. He still shreds the big waves. And, and basically, you know, surfers can debate, but when it kind of comes down to it, he's kind of the king, right? We could all have our, but, you know, well, yeah, he really is. He's the Michael Jordan, if you will, of, of surfing, right? So, and what's fascinating is you get a bunch of surfers talking about Kelly Slater, and they'll start going, oh, remember that time in that, when he won that particular Billabong special back in 2013? Remember that wave? Oh, man. And they would tell stories about the amazing feats of Kelly Slater. They knew all the competitions he was in. They knew all the moves that he'd done. They knew exactly what the judges, oh, that wasn't fair, man. He totally won. The, they know that guy inside and out. And the challenge becomes, why don't we know Jesus like that? Remember that time he healed those guys? Remember that time that Jesus you know, kicked the demons out of that guy? That's who we should be saying. That's our guy. We know everything about his stories. We know everything about what he did. We know chapter and verse, not just to puff up our brains, but because that's who we're modeling ourselves after. That's amazing. Yay, Jesus loved when he did that. To be like that, we got to really know the story. we got to know the material. So the idea in the Bell's paradigm is that we take seriously learning Jesus. Commit to that, to reading about Jesus, reading the Gospels, etc. Last one, scent. The commitment in the Bell's paradigm of scent is that I will journal throughout the week about all the ways I alerted others to the universal reign of Jesus through Christ. See, in, this, in the journaling exercise, you're beginning to identify yourself as a missionary. You're, you're owning that I am a sent one. I keep using that word. I hope you'll catch it. Where I live, work, and play. I am a sent representative of the kingdom of God where I live, work, and play. And I'm going to own that identity Loved by the Father, sent to be a blessing where I live, work, and play. That's an amazing way to live. And so I'm going to journal a little bit about, at the end of the week maybe, like, okay, when, 
When did I get to represent Jesus this week at my office or at the clubhouse or, or in the pool over there? Or, like, and, and who's God bringing to mind that he wants you to love and bless? You're, you're, you're capturing your thinking of what it's like to live on mission. And as you do that, it reinforces this idea that you are a sent one. How have I demonstrated through reconciliation or any kind of justice or beauty? Have, have I pointed out the beauty of the creation and who the creator is? Just any of these themes. You're, you're, you're learning to wrestle with, I'm a sent one, and I'm noticing what God's doing around me, and I'm owning it by journaling. I'm processing the events of the week. I'm making sense of God's work. I'm keeping a record of insights, re record of the Bible readings. I'm reading the scriptures with missional eyes, and God's teaching me some things. We're jotting that stuff down. I'm becoming a, a really observant learner and a sent one through this habit. I'm learning to identify, identify myself differently. If we would actually all take, even that paradigm seriously, and have a small group where we like keep each other accountable to living like a Bell's Christian, a questionable life kind of Christian. Be fun to see what God might do through that. I love this picture, the last picture. You know, the goal is we want to see changed lives in Jesus. Yes? We're not doing this stuff to get saved. This is the stuff we do because we're saved. Because we now get to play on Jesus' mission field. It's his turf. He's expanding his kingdom, and we get to be part of it. So let me leave you with this. My team that used to be the refocusing team, now called the Activated Team, we've just put up a website called activatedteams.org. Our good friend back up there in the crow's nest has brought it up. And what you'll notice, so I want you to write down somewhere on the back or on the top, if I want you to capture this website, activatedteams.org. This is my team. These are our, this is the latest and greatest materials that we are literally putting out as we speak. The gentleman that you met yesterday, Nick Greenwood, who was here as my guest, is one of the primary authors of one of these missional series that we've put together. He's done a fabulous job in this. And this is really, you can enter this kind of life, these kinds of tools, from three different places. On the left, you'll notice, if you're an individual and you're in a church and the pastor is just not really interested in this missional stuff, but, but you've been captured by some ideas this week and you want to experiment a little bit, then you want to jump into that one. Individuals and their small groups, you can access our materials, get into one of our cohorts, take the course online through Zoom. It's easy, it's fun, it's life-changing. I've led a few of them myself online with people all over the country. It's really, really fun. Or a group of you could just say, let's do that for the next 15 weeks before we go back to so-and-so, wherever, and do it right here. Go online. We're happy. And so that's the individual side. If you're a leader in youth ministry in some way, we have a whole track of this stuff aimed at the youth brain. <laughs> Get it? It's aimed for like 14 to 18-year-olds, maybe 12 to 18, something like that. And we have a, one of our teammates is a, a former high school teacher, She's really good in spiritual formation. She's been writing this material really aimed at the youth market, and you can access it that way. Finally, uh, for pastors in their churches that are interested in the missional pathway, which is then you'd be actually be bringing me and some of my colleagues out. We'd run a series of workshops. We would do some of these trainings online. I'm happy to come and work with your pastor. I go all over the world. I don't care, cold or hot, doesn't matter to me. I'm good with it. I will come, and I will help.
That's what I do. As we said earlier, I've got people who support my ministry so I can come to you for very minimal cost. You'll pay the airplane fare and you'll house me and feed me somewhere. We're good to go. That's all I ask. Make sense? Because I want the mission to get accomplished. So you can access our stuff and you can begin to jump in our swimming pool and swim around in there and see what, see what, what works for you. I have dropped a whole lot of material on you. Again, I hope that for different folks, different ideas will resonate. Some of these ideas will, will get you down the road. That's okay. They're like little firecrackers that are kind of dormant and all of a sudden they go off. We've designed it that way. But I hope it's been stretching. I hope it's been refreshing. I hope it's been encouraging. I hope it's been challenging. And I hope you feel like, wow, I'm really glad we did that together. I'm glad to be with you. I've loved you. I'm enjoying being with you. Hope I can come again someday. God bless you. Thank you. We're done. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. Thank you. If you'll just give me about five to ten more minutes total. Um, first off, just let me please um, tell you, apologize I wasn't here when you started this morning, but it is great to have such a great team that I can be called away and Bruce and the rest of the folks carry on. Amen. Um, that's, that's a sign of a great team that that can happen. And um, Dave is, um, is comfortable now. He's sleeping. Most of you know Dave Newville. Um, over the years, he's become a very dear friend to me, and I know he's a dear friend to many of you. Uh, he's resting comfortably right now. He is, he is near going to be with Jesus, okay? He's got a number of friends and family surrounding him right now, and they encouraged me to come back over here and finish up over here, but I'll be checking with him later. Now, that being said, a couple things. Um, you know, Kirk has exceeded my wildest expectations here this week and casting the vision and, and helping people to know. You can go ahead and clap. But all of this stuff, if we don't do something with it, both individually and collectively, then why were we here the last two and a half, three days? So some things that I've been thinking about and um, bells. I tell you what, this is, this is cool. This whole bells thing is way cool. And what I would challenge you to do, don't need a commitment right now, but let me know, walt at svmen.com, that's my email address, let us know. I'd love for you to get with two or three or four or five other people. Look around you, who's here? And I'd love to you, I don't wanna, I don't wanna have to shepherd you and, 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 and force you into groups like that. You figure it out organically. Find some people that you're here with that heard this and understand it. And if you're willing to do this for a couple months at least, form a group, let me know about it, and then let me know both individually and collectively again how this is working. Because this, this is a great application of this stuff. For years, I've been trying to figure out how, because of our transience of our people here, as you come and go, and you know, it's cool that you represent all these churches from all over North America, but trying to corral the cats or herd the cats so that, so that we can do something like small groups and things like that. Kirk and I have been talking about that for two or three years, you know, that I've known him. So, so, so see if maybe these Bells groups would be a way of doing that. But give us feedback so that, you know, on a Sunday morning I can share about this, you know, especially 
this thing about, you know, having a meal with someone that isn't a member of the chapel or isn't churched. I encourage you, I encourage you to know who, do you know your neighbor? Two doors to the right, two doors to the left. Do you know your neighbor that lives across the street from you? Are you engaged with them? Not as a Jesus project, not that you're going to, hopefully you listened yesterday, not that you're going to go over and share the Roman road with them, the four spiritual laws, the EE presentation, all those many other great things that, were, that worked in the past. Just get to know them and just love them. Just love them. Loving people into the kingdom that aren't Christians yet. So bells. Um, and also just to point out, Kirk's alluded, he said a little bit, but as he said, he's a supported missionary. That means he raises his support. Okay, he doesn't, the missions organization doesn't have, Novo doesn't have millions and millions and millions of dollars and pay him a salary. He has to raise all of his support. And if you want to help support Kirk personally, or, or even Nick, who was here yesterday, if you want to know how you can do that, I can make that available to you. I can show you through the Novo website now how you, can, how you can become a supporter of Kirk personally. Let me know if you want to know how to, how to do that. So, Kirk, we really appreciate uh, you being here. It's been a great blessing to me personally over the past four years, and especially this, this week. I'm so glad that we got to have, have refreshed this year. My only, um, my only regret is that we didn't have this room full of 300 people like we normally do, but we had the people, as my wife likes to say, the people that God wanted to be here are here. Amen? Amen. So share this stuff with other folks. I have to give one more, one more round of appreciation for Kirk. And again, and again also for my, my brother here, my right-hand guy, Bruce. And all of the many, all the many other people behind the scenes, you know, Barb and Joe and Lou and, and, and Pam and Chris and all the other people that help make this. This is a team effort. It doesn't just happen. I just get the honor and pleasure of standing and watching this happen with folks. Thank you. Go ahead. Hey, yeah, and let's thank one more time Kevin and Larry and Russ. Because I... I I promise you this is just not a gig for them. They are followers of Jesus. They love the Lord, and they pour their gifts, their central nervous system into doing this. So let's stand as fully loved people, and let's end with singing, singing a verse and chorus this.
bless y'all. Y'all have a blessed rest of your day. joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.